Hi everybody, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now in this edition of the podcast, we are delving into our classic cars file. The car we're featuring is the Bathurst winner of Peter Brock that many of you have forgotten. People feel that this is going to be the fastest and the hardest 1,000 ever run at Bathurst. Away they go. Look at the distance between these cars. It's a real race and Brock is the one who wants to get to the lead. Last lap sign goes up. It's two and three quarter minutes now before the end of the race for Peter Brock, the race leader in car number five. I think it's hard for people to understand just how much this is going to mean to Peter Brock. He's beaten the works cars. He left the team, he went out to do his own thing, he had a bad run there for a period, and here he's come back, and he's beaten them fairly and squarely himself. That's it, the chequered flag for Peter Brock in the 1975 Hardy Frodo 1000 at some great memories and some great commentary there from over the years. We are taking a look on this podcast at the 1975, uh, wasn't James Hardy then, it was the Hardy Ferrodo 1000 Bathurst winning L34 Tirana, the Gown Hindoff car of Peter Brock and Brian Sampson. Will Dale is alongside me again for another episode. Will, this is the car that it's one of Peter Brock's well, it's not his nine Bathurst winning cars because he used eight cars to win his nine Bathursts, <laughs> but it's the one that probably people forget. Why do they forget it? Well, you think about Brock, you think about his Bathurst twins, you think Holden Dealer team, you think the red, white and black Tur- Tirana XE1 that he started in. Big banger. Big banger. You think of all those Marlborough livery cars, you think of the mobile car that he got that last one three months later, halfway through 1988. You don't think of the yellow car that he won in 75 with. But why? Is it because it wasn't a factory HDT car? Or is it the fact that it's not around anymore? It's not visible. It's not in your face. You don't see it in a museum. You don't see it at a muscle car masters or a collector car event. It's probably all those th- it's probably all those things and the fact that Brock only raced this car for one year. He very quickly moved on to do his own thing after that. The rest of the time he's associated with factory Holden squads or once again his own team after HDT ends. It's not a huge chapter of Peter Brock's career, but it is a pretty pivotal one. Now, before we get too deep-dived into our classic car on this episode of the podcast, let's go back to our previous podcast. And we had a Q&A session, and we had some cracking questions. And one of them was referring to Channel 9 covering Australian Touring Car Championship uh, racing, which, to the best of our knowledge, I mean, they didn't on a regular methodology or platform, but they did at some point. You have found some proof. Yes, one of our listeners emailed us after that podcast and pointed us to the fact that Oren Park had a deal with Channel 9 in the mid-70s. So Channel 9 actually televised a handful of touring car races and touring and race meetings from Oren Park from about 1973 through to 1975, which means Channel 9 actually televised the race where Alan Moffat clinched his first Australian touring car championship in 1973. Now, that's a bit of tape. Mm. I'd love to find. You'd have to presume... There's no chance of that surviving. If it did survive, it's probably as a news story on the Channel 9 News in Sydney mm. from that night. Ooh, that's yeah. got me thinking. Yeah. That'd be one hell of a topic to go and find some amazing vision. I still think there's a lot of vision out there that 
has never been found and no one's known where to look. And sometimes I think it's because it's not labelled correctly and it's in places where no one's ever going to look for it. Well, I know on my in my VHS collection back in the day, I stumbled across a few things I didn't know I had. <laughs> VHS, what's that, say some of our listeners. Uh, another topic that we had that we want to quickly cover off on was a question relating to Bathurst winning cars being unrestored and un used what's the most unrestored of them and we talked about the gary rogers motorsport vt commodore the one that won the race 20 years ago this year 2000 garth tander and jason barguana and a listener reminded me via email that that car actually ran at the baskerville historics back in uh, 2016 with sam walter former dvs racer behind the wheel Uh, so that car has had a little bit more track time than we had remembered and the previous year, 2015, it was Gary Rogers' 70th birthday, and the car was part of the collection of cars that were wheeled out at Queensland Raceway. Uh, totally surprised to him uh, <laughs> to celebrate his birthday with Garth Tander behind the wheel and Jason Barguana in the passenger seat. So that car has had a couple of extra runs on track that we had uh, forgot to cover off on, but it's actually led to the question from a fan during the week, would you do a book on the history of every Bathurst winning car? It's a big book, but it'd be pretty cool. It's a really cool idea. Mm. Um, I'd be on board for that. Well, I pay you, so that would probably be the easy <laughs> way to get you on board. <laughs> hey, let's yeah, talk yeah. about this Brock car, the 75 winning gown Hindoff, uh, Tirana L34. Uh, it is the first V8 Tirana to win the Bathurst great race, of which there was a few. Um, privateer era for Brock. He'd left the Holden dealer team at the end of 74, uh, hooked up with Norm Gown and the late Bruce Hindoff. Uh, with their own Tirana that I think they'd already built. They were already doing this, weren't they? Exactly. They'd built that car up throughout the back end of 1974. Norm Gowan had actually raced it and tested it already. And then all of a sudden, Brock was linked with a project in early 1975, did a few test laps at Calder. They decided to do the full year. And, of course, Brock's the reigning, at that point, Australian touring car champion. So this Tirana rolls out. It's got number one. He's the reigning national champion, and he's permitted to run that number, and that's what he did during the touring car championship. Not too many times you can think in the history of Australian touring car racing where a brand-new team has rolled out with a number one. Having never (laughs) run their car before uh, helps when you get the reigning champion coming and drive for you. The thing that sticks in my mind about that car, I've, I've commonly seen it written as a yellow and black Tirana. Not quite right, is it? No. The um, gown Hindoff colours were actually yellow and dark blue. Very dark. Hard to pick it in some of the old photos in books and magazines and even sometimes on the vision of the the races, it's hard to pick up. But it was most certainly a very, very deep blue, not black, on the bonnet. Mm. In the later years where that car raced with them, they did actually change to a slightly lighter blue that was more easily picked up Mm. and much more visible. The thing is with this car, it's Bannerhead achievement beyond winning Bathurst, it won the Triple Crown in 75. It won the Sandown, well, it was called the Sandown 250 back then. The last of the um, 250-mile Sandown races, which was the same as 400 400, but They finally got around to changing it to metric. Um, Bathurst winner, and then the Phillip Island 500k race, which was the traditional end-of-year touring car race in the 70s, which Brock drove solo and and won, despite being off the road at some point. There's a photo of him in a hedge somewhere. Had to reverse it out. Exactly. The thing that sticks out, though, is it is the first 05 car. Yes. The the number that he became famous for that has been retired by Motorsport Australia. And ironically, though, it wasn't the number that he used to win Bathurst with that car because he wasn't allowed to use it at the time. The concept of a zero in front of your number, (laughs) whoa, too much for race control. 
And if you look really closely at some of the photos, there's a point in front of the 05 because the point of it was 0.05, which was the blood alcohol percentage level in Victoria, which, it, you know, it's commonplace, regular now, 0.05. But it wasn't time, a national standard at that point. No, it was different in different states as well. But it was all part of this raising of awareness of drink driving and the dangers of it. Where at the time prior to that, it was just, eh, whatever, drive, go go have a skinful, drive your car. And this was about changing the mentality of the public and of the law uh, and raising the awareness of it, which I think over the years later on, everyone forgot the perspective of what the Zero Five was about. It was a sponsorship deal. That's how it started. I mean, Tim Plastic Pemberton, he's a long-time PR guy and guy I worked for in the days at Holden Motorsport. Uh, he went around with Brock doing school visits and making speeches and doing all sorts of stuff, and they went and spoke about this message of drink driving the blood alcohol limit, and that's what the number was all about, and it started. I talked to Plastic last year for a Saturday sleuthing column for the Supercars website, and he said, because everyone knows that certainly from the 80s onwards, Peter Brock was fantastic with fans, excellent at talking, excellent at making you feel as though like you were the only person mattered when you were talking to him. I talked to Plastic about Brock back in the day, whether he was always like that or whether that's something that evolved over time. He said in those early chats, you could see that that Brock had that sort of nature where he could talk to a crowd and really connect and be very articulate, but he was still a bit rough around the edges and still not fully comfortable <laughs> in front of big crowds, and they worked on that and worked on that, and that's essentially what built the Peter Brock that we remember today, the legend that, yeah, was so good with fans. Now, remember that that race of Bathurst 75, so Brock's done the Touring Car Championship, which has been won by his old teammate Colin Bond in... Uh, the HDTL 34, which it was Bondi's first year of running the championship in terms of the proper whole Australian championship. In the previous years, Brock had done that for the team and Bond had been their Sydney guy who would do the Sun 7 series, whichever rounds of Australian Touring Car Championship were at, say, Oran Park or Amaru. Toby Lee series. Yeah, yeah. and of course he was busy with the rally program as well. So I didn't realise that Bondi had never raced at Calder until 1975. He'd done 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 rallycross. Yeah, he did (laughs) rallycross. He did it like back when the Dulux Rally had a stage at Calder. But yeah, never raced a touring car until 75. It's funny how these things work out. But I mean, the the 75 Bathurst race is one where there was really three contenders. It was probably four if you count Bob Morris and Frank Gardner, but it was Brock and Sampson. Uh, Alan Moffat with Pete Gagan in the red XBGT, and then the dealer team, uh, Marlborough Tirana of Colin Bond and Johnny Walker. So they were the they were the contending cars, really. And I remember Brock's relationship with Bridgestone had started around that time. So that's his first real um, Brock and Bridgestone yes. big win. Of course, he became synonymous for um, Bridgestone with a capital B, as they said <laughs> later on in the ads and the donuts and Bevo in the ads and all sorts yeah. of stuff. And uh but that was a, his second Bathurst win. He'd won in 72 in the six-cylinder XU1. He'd left the factory team. He was out on his own. He was, you know, doing his own thing um, and ended up winning that race through basically a pretty dedicated, level-headed kind of a um, a job. And he and Samson had driven together the previous year. Mm. They, put, they should have steamrolled him in 74. They were six laps in front. And it broke. And it broke. So... And that was at lap 120 or thereabouts. So they were, it wasn't just a, you know, they were a fair way into that race. So they, they kind of got one back on the mountain that they had been owed from the previous year. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. 
But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines? Some standing as tall as 260 metres, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter. That's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts, and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea, where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. The tale gets really interesting in the history of this car since because it's one of the cars that, as we said at the start of the pod, it's it's not out there. You don't see it because it doesn't exist anymore. And the story was that it was written off in a road crash in Tasmania, but who and when and how to me was always a bit of a mystery until a few years ago for Australian Muscle Car Magazine, I found the guy who wrapped it around the power pole and the tree back in the day. His name's Michael Rowell. He's these days the director of a transport company on the Gold Coast. This is about three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, in fact, that I tracked him down. I just wanted to get to the, the bottom of what really did happen to this car. And and quite frankly, um, it's a half and half story because half the car ended up somewhere and half of it ended up destroyed. Um, so you're telling me there's half a chance. <laughs> there's half a chance uh, that there could be a car out there, but... I mean, after Brock won 75, he did the Team Brock thing for 76. But this car continued on with Norm Gowan and Bruce Hindoff, though, the following year, didn't it? With, with some interesting drivers. Yeah. So Frank Gardner, legendary Australian racer, only made two touring car championship starts over the course of his extensive career. First was in 1975 in a Bob Jane car at Calder. The, his second start was at Sandown in 90, 1976. In this car, in the same car that Brock had raced the previous year. And he finished, I think, off the top of my head, third in that event. Ironically, that was the same race that was the debut event for Team Brock and Peter Brock in that other Toronto. And Brock, and we're jumping sides here, but the the car that Brock bought to get himself going in 76 was bought from a privateer driver mm. uh, who is was Wayne Mitchell, whose son Sam ended up playing for Hawthorne in the AFL many years later. So all these little weird links of history and football and, and motor racing. But uh, So it raced on in 76, but Colin Bond has a tie into this car as well because there was a, a famous accident at Amaru Park in 76 at the Touring Car Round where Alan Grice got together over the top of the hill on the first lap with Colin Bond. Sent Bondy spinning in front of the pack and... Most of the field made it past, but then was it Bob Skelton? Yeah, I think played in there yeah. and it all got pretty nasty and messy, but it was a two-heat round. So for the second race, Bond took over the Gown-Hindoff car and started from the rear of the grid. So one of those unique situations where a driver swapped cars mid-round. And Bruce Hindoff had gone pretty well in that first heat. Yeah. He came home fourth. Yeah, it's one of those unique parts of championship history where cars have been shared in races other than endurance races, where it's obvious that there's two per car. But um, after that all ended, um, 
It ended up in Tasmania with a boy called Roger Stanley who raced it as an L34. If you find some old photos, it was still in a, a, a yellow, but it had a, a lot of splashes of green on it that um, made that car look quite distinctive. And that's where later on Michael Rowell purchased this car. Um, no engine. He got a motor built up for it, and he straight swapped him an SLR 5000 road car Tirana for it. So you'd think... I reckon I've done a good deal here. I've just got myself a Bathurst-winning uh, Peter Brock Tirana. But, of course, at the time, no one's thinking about what these cars are worth no. in 30 or 40 years' time, are they? Not in the slightest. So he took the cage out, he stripped it down to nothing, rebuilt it from the ground up um, to race in streetcar racing, which was really big in Tassie back then and for many years. It still car. is in a, in a yeah, way, shape or form. Huge, huge category down there with a variety of different cars. So- at that time, he's in his early 20s. He's not thinking, wow, Brock's a legend. This thing's going to be worth half a million. Well, at that uh, point, I'm just Brock's gonna... only won two battles. He's only won two. He ain't <laughs> won nine. He's, he's, he's a name, but he ain't the, uh, the icon that he became later on down the track. So it got painted. It was painted yellow and green when he got it. So he stripped it all down and he found some things on it that point to the fact that it was very much built for the racetrack and not for the road. So he could see some of the things that Gaon Hindoff had done with the car. He said every part of the body was seam welded. They'd pumped foam inside every cavity where um, it was seam welded too. And the door fill the door pillars were all foam filled as well. So it had a bit of rate, a fair bit of race about it. Um, you know, none of the brackets for exhausts, all the excess stuff was removed, no sound deadener. So it was pretty clear what this thing was gonna be from when it started off its life. So he made a really good show car out of it. Put an L34 motor in it, standard L34 gearbox, a Detroit locker, um, some HQ-style front brakes. They bolted in the roll cage back in it, the same one it raced at Bathurst. Um, and it was sort of – was all pretty much there as it raced, you it would say. Like it's a nice car. It sounds like a really yeah. nice car. So he bought it in around late 77, and he was convinced what to do with it because of Gene Cook. Remember Gene Cook that raced Tiranas in yes. Tassie and then NASCAR later on? Um, he had a green car around the same time, and he thought that that, ooh, that looks a bit of all right. I might like, might like to do mine like that. So he he, he raced it in streetcars at Simmons and Baskerville for six months or so. It was still road registered, which wasn't out of the norm for no. race cars of the time. So then um, there was a bit of a drama. <laughs> He blew the gearbox up about four times and they kept stripping front teeth off the cluster. So he put a top loader in it and that fixed that sort of a drama. <laughs> but then there was a bit of a um, a plan and a plot to get him into speedway racing, which he, he did, and he got a little bit hooked on that because he thought it was pretty good. Um, so by this time, the cars ended up black because that's what um, Gene Cook had done because he'd had a, uh, a green one, stripped it back and painted it black. So that's what this car had become. It became a black car, but this will make you... This will make you cringe. So there was a car yard in Devonport that offered to sell it for Rao, right? And he said, the quote was that he told me at the time, uh, this is a few years back, it was a bloody nice car by that stage. We put it in his car yard for $8,000 in 1979 or thereabouts. It was for sale for eight grand for a long time, advertised as a Bathurst winning car that Peter Brock had driven, could not sell it. Can you believe it? That's, that's, that hurts. Can you imagine if someone tried to sell a Peter Brock winning Bathurst winning car for oh. eight grand now? Oh, it'd have some more zeros attached to it. I'll give you the tip. And they would be to the right. Yes. And, yeah. Well, to the left of the decimal point, but to the right of the whole number. So eventually, though, he couldn't sell it. 
So he got it back out of the car yard on a New Year's Eve, which we think is about 78 or, or 79. And that's where it's racing life. Well, it's it's life as a car ended. So he went went and picked up a mate, going back to a New Year's Eve party, flat chat through a turn on the road and like fast. We're talking 180, 170, you know, silly speed. Yeah. Around a telegraph pole. Guy came the other way, had to go off the bitumen and miss him. Good night. Broke his neck, every rib on his left-hand side, burst his spleen, hole in the lung in a bad, bad sort of a way. So he reckons it's 78, 79, somewhere in one of those years because he moved to Queensland in 1980 and he figured it was not that long before it. So he actually ended up getting out of hospital, bought a hatchback, started doing a bit of racing, decided to rebuild the L34 because it was only damaged from the back door backwards, if that makes sense. Yes. So he bought another body shell. Stripped it all out, seam welded it, foam filled it exactly like the other car had been. Totally concourse. Had it all rebuilt, took it to the upholsterer to do the carpet in the middle of winter. There was a heater on the back parcel shelf and it ended up going up in smoke. Ugh. There's a um, small irony in that in that one of Brock's first races in the gown hindoff car was the Calder Touring Car Championship round. And the carpet caught fire. It started smouldering throughout the race, and he had to be dragged out of the car at the end of it after finishing second. Yeah. Has the, oh, gee, a bit fuming in there. Oh, uh, yep, carpet's on fire. Yeah. Problem that you don't have in supercar racing these days. Thankfully, no. Uh, shag pile, not an option. No. Um, and then the story always went, was this car destroyed in a road crash and dumped? Was it hacked up? Was it a speedway car? Was it – well, it's kind of all true, mm. which you might be thinking – yeah. How on earth can all of those stories be true? But what he told me was that he stripped the car and cut it in half. That's how it's true. So he said the front half went went to a bloke in Tassie called Godfrey Gale, who was a speedway racer, and he got it. So he got from the B pillar forward, and apparently he's glued that onto a damaged speedway car to repair it and reborn his car. He kept Raoul kept the seam welded cross member out of it and all the mechanicals, and they went into another hatchback that he built up. And the rear end of the shell went into the Harford tip near Devonport. Heartbreaking. Now, he told us that he kept the chassis tags from that car, but they were stolen in a break-in at his business. Well, it was about five years ago at the time, so it's about eight or nine years ago now. So it's an amazing story of this car that part of it, I, I would be amazed if the front end of that Speedway car ever existed anywhere. Stranger things have happened. They have. Um and somewhere potentially, and someone may have stolen these as part of breaking and stealing other things and didn't see the value or know about it or who knows, but I, I guess- Or we could see a, <laughs> yeah. in a couple of years. Could, yeah, so the guys at Motorsport Australia might want to check the uh, the chassis numbers of those cars just to check if anything like that ever pops up. But it is a really interesting story as to where a Bathurst winning cars ended up and they're the sort of cars that now are coveted. They are- the gold for collectors. A Bathurst winning car of any era, of any type, is a very, very special thing. But it's it's one of those things that we'll never know about this car because it never made it that far. And as Michael Rao said to me, he said it, it's crossed his mind quite a lot of times over the years what that thing would have been worth sitting genuine if it had survived. He said, but at the time, who was Brock? He won two Bathursts, not nine. Um but where it stands in the history of racing and Bathurst and muscle cars, it's the first V8 Tirana to ever win Bathurst. Which is a big thing. Big what went thing. There? Huge thing. It's a Brock Bathurst winner, which adds value. 
privateer car, which gives it an element of being quite unique in that there wasn't a million Gaunhind off Tiranas over the time and over the journey. Um, it's just a real shame that that piece of uh, racing history is no longer around. It's funny. One thing that I stumbled across when I was doing a bit of research for this episode is that it's it the car has actually been memorialised somewhat in a mural on the back of the old Gown Hindoff premises in Box Hill. Really? So if you can we get a photo? We've got to get on, a fan. It's in on Melbourne. Google Maps. Okay. So right. if you if or Google Street View, I should say. So if you go to I think it's forty four Clarice Street, Box Hill, and mm. do a bit of a spin around, because the Gown Hindoff premises they've since moved. And but the building's still the there. building's still there. It's now a kitchen kitchen place, right? Um, and they've got ironic down the side. They've got murals of kitchens, <laughs> but on the back is a half completed mural of the um, the car on its way to winning Bathurst in nineteen seventy five. So was it only half completed because that's when Google did the imagery, and it would be fully completed now? Hard to say. So we need to get someone to who's driving walk. past yeah. that way over in Box Hill to take a photo and send it in. Yeah, that's cool. That's something very different. And, of course, it's inspired some um, tribute cars. There's been some replicas produced of those cars over the years. Remember that when uh, Peter passed away in 2006, there was the uh, replica that ran up at Bathurst that year, which I think Greg Murphy drove off Mm -hmm. the top of my head as part of the pre-race ceremony with a pile of cars in commemoration. And then uh, 2016, I think we put Mark Scaife behind the wheel of that car as part of the 10-year anniversary of um, of Peter's passing. So, and it's inspired some other cars and other things. And the thing that springs to my mind, remember when Bruce Williams wheeled out his SLR 5000 Touring Car Masters car, it was in that, li- I mean, it's been in AC Delco and other liveries since, but when he wheeled it out, that was the livery it was in, the 75 Bathurst winning car. And a Brock Bathurst winning car, what's that car worth today if it was here restored with all the right bits in it? It's easily half a million dollar car, yeah. comfortably. Comfortably. Better it's, get looking for that front half. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's so hard to say, but it's one of those things that will keep people talking for many years. But we thought it was an interesting car to focus in on some of the history, where it sits and what it means in the grand scale of Australian touring car racing and, and Bathurst. And if any of our listeners have got ideas for cars they'd like to hear featured in our classic car episodes, which we do every now and then, uh, we'd love to hear them. Send us a note through the website or through social media. And um, some of these cars you've read stories about in magazines or on our website, but it's a little different when we get the chance to talk about it because we've got a bit more time and space. And uh, in a magazine, we're limited to word counts and how much room we've got or what photos we've got to go with it. On a podcast, we can just go forever. And it's nice because you sometimes when you're talking about these things, you think of things that you either hadn't considered or something that you'd long forgotten pops into your brain or you just stumble across something that you thought, oh, I didn't know that. And one of the points we made at the front of the podcast, which probably still got people scratching their head thinking, hang on a minute, the maths doesn't work there. Nine Bathurst wins, mm. eight Bathurst winning cars. Yes. So one of the cars that Peter Brock drove won two Bathursts. The car that he and Larry Perkins drove to victory in 1982, VH Commodore, um, was actually serving as the team's number 25 car in the 1983 race when the brand new U-Butte 05 um, detonated an engine nine laps into the race. Very early. And um, under the rules of the time, Brock and Larry Perkins were entitled to move across as a unit into the second car, which had already had John Harvey behind the Mm -hmm. wheel for the first stint. 
displacing Peter's brother, Phil. Yep. And the three-driver crew of Peter Brock, Larry Perkins, and John Harvey went on to win. So, therefore, the one car won two of the races, and then the rest, therefore, that's why there's eight cars for Correct. nine wins. Yeah. So, and then, of course, that's not counting the cars that he started, the 83 and 87 races in that. So, technically, uh, 10 and, cars Well, they're not the winners. They didn't win. They were retired and gone and blowing engines and out of the... Uh, out of the mix at that stage. Hey, other great news too that we want to cover off, our great friends at the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama. It has reopened last week, so I know they're on um, limited in terms of how many people they can have inside the venue, but the great news is that our good mates up there, Brad Owen and his team do an amazing job. Uh, the doors are back open there. Uh, and the other thing is, before we finish this podcast, we said thank you last week. We've got to say thank you again this week mm. to those who've bought the DJR 40 Years of Cars history book because – it has been a stunning success. In fact, it's been bigger than Ben-Hur, and we're out. We've got none left. The cupboard is empty. It was a big cupboard to start with. Uh, we're sold out of our stock. I'm of the understanding that our partners at Authentic Collectibles in Perth are out of stock. The National Motor Racing Museum does have limited stock of the DJR Cars History Book. If you've missed out on one, give them a call or, or pop into the museum. Uh, I know that they do have some stock as we record this. There are some stockists as well. Um Go to the Authentic Collectibles website to find a list of those. If you're on the hunt for a book, that's the best place for you to hunt. We don't have any left here at V8 Sleuth. We've sold the allocation that we had as part of the project and far quicker uh, than we thought. We've had so much amazing feedback, some really nice emails and um, Facebook messages and phone calls to the office too, which uh, is blowing me away. It's so nice to hear that sort of stuff because I know when I can't – Went to Bathurst for the first time with V8 Sleuth last year and worked the V8 Sleuth bookshop in the car display in the paddock. It's probably the first time I've really interacted with a lot of the fans and a lot of the people such as yourselves who are listening to this um, to actually hear direct feedback on the stuff we do and hear all the nice things you think about our products and it's it's really nice to hear. We don't get to hear that sort of feedback that often. You usually only hear in life everything that's wrong and everything that people don't like. You don't yes. normally hear what they like <laughs> or what's right. So, again, thank you very much. We're, we're working on a, a range of other book projects. The Bathurst 12-hour book is chipping away. It's with the printer now. Uh, our Racing the Lion Holden book is also uh, – we're right in the midst of putting the content together for that, the illustrated history, 400 pages of Holden in Australian motorsport, of course. You Including can jump- photos of this car. Yeah, yeah, the Brock Bathurst winner. All the Bathurst winning cars are in there. All the Australian Touring Car Championship and Supercars Championship winning cars are, are photographed. And uh, it's a really great collector's piece of uh, a lot of amazing imagery from over the years and some very chunky captions that you've been putting together, which uh, we're nearly there on. We're not far away from finishing. But head to our website, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au to order any of our products. Uh, it's been great going down memory lane with the 75 Bathurst winning Tirana. Uh, I think we've all learned something about that car. It's a pretty cool car in history. If you've got any ideas for classic cars upcoming, send them in through the website or via our social media. And we've got some good chats coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to sit down with Paul Umbrell, the 2012 Bathurst 1000 champ, and of course he's a shareholder these days of Triple Eight Race Engineering. So does that make him Wincup's boss, but not boss because Wincup's got a shareholding? Co-bosses. Co. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I will pose that question, and we are also going to have a catch-up chat very, very soon with Michael Caruso. Looking forward to having a chat to Robbo as well. But that's us done on this podcast. Again, thank you to Timkin for their amazing support bringing you our podcast series right throughout the course of 2020. Uh, will, anything else to say? 
No, that's me. Oh, that's easy. You're such a good co-host. No, not too hard to deal with. Uh, we're done. Another podcast gone. If you haven't heard all our old episodes, go back through the files and have a listen to some of our great chats from over the course of this year and last year. Keep the questions flowing. Keep the feedback flowing too. We'll chat again soon. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.